0: Okay, the first thing that I would ask you uh, to consider this evening is the very fact that British society in the 21st century, it is unusual. So that's the first thing. British society in the 21st century, today it is unusual. Now what do I mean by that? Well, tonight if we were to gaze back into previous generations in the United Kingdom, what would we see? Well, I think what we would see is a general belief in God. Is that not the case? If we were to go back, gaze uh, 300 years ago into the United Kingdom. Now, we're not saying that everyone would be professing Christians. We're not saying that everyone would be saved. But isn't it true that generally speaking, about 300 years ago, the people in this island they believed in the possibility, the reality of an all-powerful creator God. And isn't it also the case that in other parts of the world today, this same thing is true. That through the... false gods of Hinduism, through the false gods of Islam, that in other parts of the world tonight, generally speaking, other people out there, they believe in the divine, don't they? You see it historically, but also across the world today, there is this general idea, this general belief in God or the divine. But Britain's different. Your friends, the people you're going to see tomorrow, the people you work with. Do you see how it's different? They have no time for God. They have no time or thought of the divine. No time for religion. They certainly have no time for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that today, this this country, it is unusual. Why? What's going on? You... Me, we live today, Britain, in what is a secular age. Do you see that? Do you see how unusual it is? We live today in an increasingly secular society. Okay, because of that situation, I have got a question for you. Do you think that such secular thinking is beyond the scope of the Bible? Like, even if you're a Christian tonight, is that what you think? You think, well, that was never God's intention to to the secular mind. Do you think, okay, the Bible was written an awful long time ago. It doesn't really engage with the modern mind. The Bible is written for people who are sort of thinking about God or thinking about religion. It doesn't deal with modern thinking. Is that what you believe? If so, Humbly, can I say to you, you're wrong. See, tonight we begin a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And get this, this book that we're going to be studying together over the next number of weeks, it is a book about secularism. Isn't that an incredible thought? I find that an incredible thought. That this book that was read so many centuries ago, this Old Testament book, what is it? It is actually an evaluation. It is actually a critique of secular humanism. Isn't that amazing? But don't you see what that therefore means? This book that you and I are going to be studying, it is a book for Britain today. Now, let's be really uh, ambitious about things tonight, shall we? Uh, Tonight, what we will try and do, God willing, is two things, okay? (laughs) First thing that we're going to try and do tonight is deal with some of what are the important introductory matters about Ecclesiastes. Some introductory matters, just so that you and I get to grips with what it is that we are going to be studying together. So that's the first thing that we're gonna do. The second thing that we're gonna try and do is we're gonna look at that section that Gabriel read earlier on. The beginning, from verse 1 to 11, it's tied to the introductory matters, but it helps us dig into them a little bit further. So you got it? The sermon, we're kind of splitting it into two, two parts to it, two halves to it. Introductory matters about Ecclesiastes. What's this book? And then we'll dig a little bit deeper into the first part of it. That's the plan. That's the agenda. So, you know what I'm going to say to you? If you wouldn't mind turning uh, to Ecclesiastes, I'll give you the page number. It's 668. Let's have that in front of us. Let's be prayerful. And let's consider an introduction to Ecclesiastes. That's our first heading, an introduction to Ecclesiastes. Okay, now... When you and I like this, when we come to a new uh, book of the Bible uh, to study it uh, in a context like this, you know as well as I do that there are a few really essential questions that we've got to ask if we are going to understand this book. Isn't that true? The first, probably the most obvious question that we've got to ask here is what kind of book is this? Now, do you see the question? You see what I mean by the question? What is the genre of this book? Like, if we're going to understand and interpret Ecclesiastes, we've got to know what we're dealing with here. What kind of book is this? And I, do you know what? I'm, I'm kind of tempted to say tonight that Ecclesiastes is a genre uh, all of itself <laughs> uh, for reasons that will become uh, clear uh, uh, very quickly. But that simply would not be true. It is not a genre all of itself. Now, what we are dealing with here is what is called a wisdom book. It's one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? It means that what we're looking at is not a book of narrative like Esther, perchance, or Samuel. And it's not... A, an, an apocalyptic book like Revelation and it's not a gospel like John and it's not an epistle like Paul's letter to Rome. No, it's a wisdom book that sits alongside other wisdom literature like Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Songs, the Book of Job. It's a wisdom book. Okay. So what? What then? Should we expect to encounter, as you and I tonight and over the next couple of weeks, as we look at Ecclesiastes? Well, because it's a wisdom book, you should expect to encounter features that are similar to the other wisdom books in Scripture. So over the next coming Sundays, we are going to be looking at glorious Hebrew poetry. We are, and it's wonderful. Take it from me. Great Hebrew songs and images, and illustrations, and similes, and metaphors, but, hmm, more especially, we are going to be looking at themes that are common to the other wisdom books. What does that mean? That means, do you know what, tonight, next week, the week after, we are going to be learning more about the folly of mankind. More about the wisdom of Almighty God. And most especially, we are going to be learning together just what it means to fear the living God. What kind of book is this? What kind of book is it? It's a wisdom book. Second question that we've all... Right, come on, obvious question. You're, you're, you've got a book of the Bible. What's the first thing that's going on in your head? What do you ask? who wrote the book okay isn't that you're asking that who wrote Ecclesiastes okay look at verse 1 verse 1 kind of gives the game away these are the words of the teacher the teacher okay so these are the words of the teacher who wrote the book the teacher (laughs) what's the next question who or what Is the teacher. Um, The word translated teacher there is from the Hebrew uh, verb which means the one who assembles people together. So it is a word that is used elsewhere in the Bible and the Old Testament of the one who gathers the people of God together to worship. The Living God. (laughs) Now that is not an incidental thing. That tells us a couple of, couple of crucial factors here. One, it tells us why this book has got such a strange title. Have you never wondered that why on earth is this book called Ecclesiastes? Well, it's from the Greek word for the one who gathers and assembles people together. But the other thing that that does is shed light on who the author is or what he's doing. See, wait a minute. Who is this man? He is one who gathers people together to do what? To teach them. And to teach them in the context of worship. So do you see what Ecclesiastes is? What is it? It's a sermon. This man's a teacher. No. This man is a preacher. He's preaching. That's what Ecclesiastes is. You're saying to me, that's half the game. You know, we've got another question, don't we, in some senses. Okay, we know that the author is a teacher or a preacher. <coughs> but if you're anything like me, if you want more than that, you want to know, aye, but who? <laughs> who exactly is this? Who is this preacher or this teacher? Look at verse 1. Look how it goes on. <coughs> Excuse me. Look what it says. The words of the teacher, next bit, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Let me turn that over to the congregation. Okay, let's be engaged. Who is that? Come on, you know your Old Testament, not difficult, is it? Who is, in the Old Testament point of view, the son of David who became the king uh, in Jerusalem? Who is it? there we go, there we go, it's Solomon, isn't it? Now listen to me, despite the fact that you will find some very good commentators cast doubt on that, and despite the fact that you and I should not be too categorical about that because it does not say anywhere in this book that Solomon wrote it, guess what, I'm sticking with that. Okay, if it was good enough for millennia of reformed thinkers, it's good enough for us, is it not? Who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? Solomon wrote the book. And what was he doing? He was doing this. He was preaching. Okay, third question. So what was the first question? What kind of book is it? Wisdom literature. Who wrote the book? Solomon wrote the book. Third question. This is the butte. What is Ecclesiastes about? Um, have you ever sat through any sort of creative writing class? You probably have, haven't. You? In primary school or in secondary school, you've done that, you know, you've sort of creative writing one-on-one, how to write a short story. Well, any class in creative writing worth its salt, what does it say? Uh, that any book to be of any value, it should have a gripping introduction. Isn't that right? You open a book, you want to open a novel, what do you want? You want an uplifting start to the book, don't you? Well, <laughs> I wish that the scholars and Ecclesiastes had just gone to any creative writing class and, and heard that. Because as I said, I think with Zechariah, every single commentator that I've read so far in Ecclesiastes they begin their commentary in the most depressing and downbeat way okay listen this is uh, Ian Provence commentary he begins a book like this he says it is best to be frank from the outset <laughs> Ecclesiastes is a difficult book Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary says the following Ecclesiastes is a tough, tough read. And then Martin Luther. And you think Martin Luther is going to come on. Martin Luther is going to be a bit more upbeat. Martin Luther begins like this. He says this is one of the most difficult books in all of Scripture. You let like, man alive. Will you throw me a bone here? But it raises a question, doesn't it? Why do they all say that? What is it about Ecclesiastes that's got everybody up in arms? What about it is so problematic? Well, look with me at verse 2, and I think you'll see the problem. Look at verse 2. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I mean, that is pretty gloomy stuff, isn't it? Now let me see, it doesn't get much brighter through the book. That's it. So you see the problem, don't you? How does that negative, pessimistic view of life everything's meaningless? How does that fit with the hope and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you see? How does this, everything is meaningless. How does this book, Ecclesiastes, with that sort of viewpoint, how does it sit comfortably with the rest of Scripture? You see how there's a problem here, don't you? Let me tell you how. Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book. Now, It might take you and I weeks... (laughs) To see that from the text. But it's not a pessimistic book. See, do this with me very carefully at verse 3. Have a look. listen to the question that Solomon asks. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils? Next three words. What are the next three words? Under the sun. And in those three words which Solomon repeats time and time and time again throughout the book, I think you and I have got the key to interpreting and understanding this book. Do you see what I mean? Under the sun. Do you see that Solomon is speaking of a limited perspective? Under the sun. He is drawing a theological dividing line between God and man. He's not speaking of all of life. What is he doing? He's speaking negatively of life under the sun. He's speaking, critiquing a life that is lived apart from and with no reference to almighty God under the sun. And so you see, do you not? That actually the book of Ecclesiastes, ah, it fits beautifully with the rest of scripture. Because Solomon, he is not speaking negatively of all of life. What is he doing? Oh, it's marvelous. He is breaking down a humanistic world view. And you and I are going to see that. He is going to dismantle he is going to deconstruct secular humanism right the way through this book. And then what is he going to do? At the very end, he's going to show you and I where true meaning, true value, true purpose in life is found in Almighty God. Now let me say this before we go on. Even when you and I get our <laughs> Our heads round the big picture here of Ecclesiastes. This is still a difficult book. The commentators, Martin Luther was not lying. Okay, it is a difficult book. There are apparent contradictions in Ecclesiastes. There are sections that we have to wrestle with. It's a difficult book. So, let me say these four things to you. One. Be here. Be here. Every week. You know, if you want to understand and, and, and hear from God through Ecclesiastes, it's, it's going to be more difficult to interpret and understand the book. If you are missing out sections, be at LCPC every Sunday evening. Be here to be engaged. We all know It's one thing to be at church. It's another thing to be awake through church. Okay? Come here engaged. Three, be prayerful, friends. Like you and me, we need to be beseeching God, pleading with God to speak to us and help us to understand this. Let's be praying through the week for this sermon series. Fourth, last thing most important of the lot. How about this? Invite someone here. What do we say? It is a book about secularism. It is therefore a book that is relevant, isn't it? Should you and I not invite people to London City Presbyterian Church, the evening service here, why? So that they might hear What almighty God has to say to the people of Britain today. An introduction to Ecclesiastes. Okay, what I want to do with the remaining time that we've got is to look at the section of scripture that you've got in front of you just now, from verses 1 to 11, and I want to do so under the uplifting title, The Meaninglessness of Everything. So the first point was an introduction to Ecclesiastes. Secondly, the meaninglessness of everything. Plato, uh, the Greek philosopher, he once wrote this. He said the unexamined life is not worth living. You got it? The unexamined life is not worth living. That was Plato. Well, the 20th century American author, Kurt Bonnegut, uh, he added to that. And uh, he said, yes, Plato. But what if the examined life is also a bit of a clunker? It's good, isn't it? But even where Vonnegut had got to, like this incredibly smart American man, he had got to the point where he was asking, what on earth is all of this about? What? What is the point of, of life on this earth? And you see, don't you, that that is the perspective from which Solomon begins his sermon. Do you see it? Look at verse 3. Now remember the question. Have a look. He says, he asked this, you can see him throwing his hands up in the air. And he says, what does man gain from all of this labor at which he toils under the sun? Do you see what he's saying? He's shouting out, he begins the sermon, he's saying, what's the point of life? What is the point of any of this? What is the point of this? And maybe you'd say "It's Solomon, you've already answered your question. Because what did he say in the previous verse? He had said, Everything is meaningless. So what is the point of life under the sun? There is no point of life under the sun. But what I want you to see is that in this portion of scripture, what he does, Solomon, is he unpacks that view a little bit. So he shows you and I tonight... Just how it is that all of life under the sun is so futile, meaningless, and utterly vain. Okay? Now, there's a few things we need to notice about what he says. First of all, he speaks of the deceptive futility of life. Now, do this with me. Would you please read verse 4 along with me? If you just have a look at verse 4, I'll read it. Verse 4. Solomon says, Generations come. And generations go, but the earth remains forever. So I, I wonder, do you see? It's not easy, but I wonder, do you see what Solomon's doing? He's comparing the futility of life with the patterns and the forces of nature. Do you see what he's doing? Do you, just, do you see his point? He's saying that as we look at the forces of nature we might conclude that there's a lot of activity and purpose behind them. But what happens upon closer inspection? It's all utterly monotonous. Do you see what he means? Look at this, verse 5. The sun looks like it's doing something. It rises and it sets. And the wind, the same. It looks like it's doing something. And, and the waters, they're rushing about. There looks like there's purpose in, in nature. But then, look. Look what he says, verse 5. The sun, it just goes back to the beginning again. The winds, they start over again. The rivers, they never do anything. He says, they never actually fill up the seas. Do you see this? It's all monotonous. It's all repetitive. His point. Thus is life under the sun. And I say to you tonight, isn't it? Like, isn't that so accurate? Look at the people of London. There's all this hive of activity. There's all this frenzy, isn't there? But what is the point of it all? Do you see? Under the sun, it's for no purpose. We are busy. Then what happens? We die. The point the preacher is making here is that under the sun, life is a empty, meaningless trick. But then... He speaks of the lack of novelty in life. The BBC, uh, for the uh, 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, the publication of the King James Bible, the BBC, I don't know how they did this, but they said that they counted how many phrases and verses from the King James Bible have made it into the speech that you and I would would use in In the modern world. How do you begin to do that? I don't know. But they say that there was 257 different verses and phrases from the King James Bible that have made it into modern speech. Right? 257. Do you know where I'm going with this? Surely we've got one in front of us here. Do we not? Look at verse 9. Look at the familiar words of verse 9. You know them, don't you? (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun. Now, you and I, we use that in a really informal way, don't we? I do, anyway. There's nothing new under the sun. I remember coming home from university, donkeys years ago, and I came home from the the summer holidays, and I was wearing, and I've still got them, bright silver paisley patterned flares kid you not and i walk into my parents house and my dad takes one look at me and he could see there's a sort of point of recognition with him sort of turns away and under his breath what does he say There's nothing new under the sun you know he keeps thinking back to a time that he may I've worn something similar to that. We use the phrase in a very informal way. There's nothing new under the sun. I really hope you see that the tone here is so utterly deaf to that. You see it, don't you? Like as Solomon here cries of the vanity of life. It is solemnly that he cries out, There is nothing new under the sun. But maybe you look at me tonight and you say, But that's not right. That's wrong. That technology advances, that that, that, that methodology advances. But don't you see human life? It doesn't. Like we sweat and we work. And, and we buy and we sell and we love and we lose just as people always have done. Do you see that? That, that yes, maybe technology advances, but, but people and their problems, they do not. What happens to us? What's always happened to us? We live, we get sick. And guess what? We die. And then lastly, Solomon shows us the painful impermanence of life. Look, please do this with me. Please look at verse 11 and please consider carefully what it says. It is a hard verse, verse 11. Solomon says that there is no remembrance of men, of old, and even those who are yet to come. They will not be remembered by those who follow. I hope you see that that is a haunting verse. I mean, you see what he is saying. There is no remembrance of people. You know, life under the sun is not just hard. And life under the sun is not just free from meaning. Don't you see what he's saying? It is also inconsequential. There's no remembrance of men. Life forgotten in a moment. Like you know uh, that TV program. I'm sure you've seen it. Who do you think you are? You know the TV program? Where a celebrity every week, a different celebrity, with the help of experts, they look into, they search into their past. They look into their family history, their family tree. And isn't the most striking element of that program, the amount of people that they uncover that have been entirely forgotten. Countless numbers of people and nobody, nobody, nobody remembers them. And isn't that the same in your own family tree? All of these people from yesteryear and nobody knows them. They're gone. They are forgotten. And I ask you this, in this room tonight, which of us, whom of us in 250 years' time, who here is going to be remembered? Can I tell you? There will be no remembrance of man of old. Friends, this is a stark view that Solomon has of life under the sun, isn't it? Isn't it tough reading, isn't it? What is life under the sun? What would the King James Version say? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Let me end with a reminder for you. You know what it is, don't you? This is not a description of all of life. Praise God for that. This is a description of life lived under the sun. Of life lived outside of relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And I want you to see tonight that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, things are utterly different to this picture, aren't they? Because you see, our Lord and Savior, what has He done? He has lived one true, meaningful life. He has lived a life of purpose. And what was the purpose? To save His people from their sin. And you see it, don't you? In Him, through repentance before Him, through faith in Him, life suddenly has meaning. We can now live and live for the glory of God. Do you understand that as a Christian? This week, you can act in ways that have not just meaning. You can act in ways glorifying God that have eternal meaning. Isn't that wonderful? Your life has worth. But it gets better. It gets better. Listen to me. What is certain of you? In Christ Jesus. What's certain of you? Hmm? Well, what was it the thief on the cross said as he looked across to the Lord Jesus Christ? The thief's life is, is ebbing away. It is dripping away. He has got moments to live. And he looks over to Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Lord, will you remember me When you come into your kingdom. Don't you see it? Don't you see what is absolutely certain for you in Christ Jesus? That on the final day. Where Lord God Almighty assesses all of mankind. Because of Christ's meaningful life. The Lord God will look at you. And what will be true? What will happen people? God will remember you. Ecclesiastes is a hard book but it is worth your attention and it is worth your attendance because you know what's going to happen here in this sermon series. God is going to point you to himself and why is that so special? Because he is where true meaning in life is found. Nice brain.